Tomb Believers to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. My name is James Hickson. And I'm Trey Lawson. And for this week's Invention Exchange, I have the Tufalizer Mask 3000. Have you ever wa- gotten up to go wander out into the pandemic-filled hellscape that is our modern world, put on your mask and realize that you have that not-so-fresh feeling? Well, worry no more, because the Tufalizer Mask 3000 is lined with tiny bristles that also have a toothpaste dispenser that fits onto a handy belt attachment. And all you have to do is put on the mask like so, and work them out like this, and then the bristles on the mask will brush your teeth for you. And then you want to go ahead and spit on the other tube which goes to a spit collection thing in your, on your other side of your belt. Like so. <laughs> I missed my tube. What do you think, sir? James? Yeah? This is not Mystery Science Theater 3000. I know we've been in this tomb for a very long time, but this it's not MST3K. We oh. don't have bots. Oh. You're not required to make inventions every week. Oh. Okay. That's good. Because my next invention was a worldwide web of information that you could create like broadcast podcast on yeah we, we already do that james we already do that it's fine damn yakor <laughs> hello everybody thwarted uh, again we are in fact a marvel horror podcast not a riffing on bad movies podcast there are lots of people out there who do that already yeah Although there are some similarities. In fact, you could probably call us Marvel Horror Longbox 3000 if you really wanted to. Except our lawyers yeah, have told us that, not to. Right, right. That that I, I feel like Alterniversal and Shout Factory and a whole bunch of other people would probably take issue with that. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but on this episode of our non-riffing Totally Marvel Horror Comics podcast, we're going to be talking... We have a, well... It's a big one. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's a whole big thing, you know? Yeah. Um, you might even call it giant-sized. Right, right. And um, and it, 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 it is kind of gendered. Like, that's a thing that, that you know, is of its time, I guess. But Yeah, although this is the gender presented to us. We're not forcing gender on it. Right. Yeah. No, this no. is, it is... So it, it self-identifies. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, um, it it it's giant says man thing, y'all. We made it. Yep. <laughs> we have hit. We have hit the uh, well, the big one. Yep. To, on this episode of Tube of Ideas, we are covering regular size man thing number eight and giant size man thing number one. That's right. 
which means that we have another episode chock full of Steve Gerber weirdness. I like to give it Steve Gerber goodness, don't you? Oh, I mean, weird is good. Weird is awesome. Yeah. We like weird here. Yeah. And it isn't quite as what the hell Steve Gerber inducing as our last episode. This is true. This is true. Um, But before we get into that, we do have a little bit of our usual uh, housekeeping to take care of as we talk about the goings-on in the broader uh, world of Marvel stuff. It's time for the hottest segment in Marvel Horror Comics podcasting. You know it, you love it. We're talking about Hellstrom Watch. Hellstrom Watch. So, first off, we've got uh, a report about what might be coming to the Into the Spider-Verse sequel. Ooh. Which, which I think, I don't know about you, but uh, that is, even though it's not MCU, mm-hmm. one of the best Marvel movies yet to be made. Yeah. Um, And and so with Into the Spider-Verse 2, a new report claims that voice actor Christopher Daniel Barnes may be reprising his role as the 90s animated Spider-Man for the sequel. Which, I don't know about the rest of you, but for viewers of our generation, um, he was our Spider-Man. Oh yeah, 100%. You you read Spider-Man comics, that's what he sounded like. Yeah, and, and that was a time when, because the cartoon was big, like a lot of the the design choices, were, the the cartoon and the comic became sort of symbiotic. That design choices in one fed into the other. Not to be confused with the Venom episodes, which were right, symbiotic right. In a di- symbiotic in a different way. Right, right. Um, yeah, Barnes has been doing Spider-Man stuff off and on. Uh, for years since the end of, of that animated series. Um, in various cartoons and games, he's voiced Spider-Man Noir, Spider-Man 2099, some of the villain characters even, all kinds of stuff. So um, it it makes sense that he would be open to coming back. Yeah. And the door to this was left open by the end of Into the Spider-Verse, which acknowledged that the 60s animated series is also one of the Earths in the multiverse. Yes. And, of course, we've heard other rumors about this movie as well, um, including, say, like, uh, there'll be references to the Japanese version of Spider-Man. Uh, right, that, the, the Toei-produced yeah, uh, co-production. The precursor to Power Rangers, or yes, Super Sentai. Was, uh, right, right. Although, really, looking back on it, it is, in my opinion, closer to Kamen Rider than it is to Power Rangers in style. Hmm. Have a, in the... He, he like... He he he's a, a motorcycle rider. Uh, it, it's more vi- it, it's before you saw as much of the like combiner robots and stuff that came later. So it, it is definitely a precursor to Super Sentai. I just also see some DNA of Common Rider in there. Yeah, although it, there's this, and there's of course also the, the rumor that the next live action Spider-Man movie will have a Spider Verse angle to it. Right. And and that's something that Kevin Feige has been talking about a little bit. In fact, this sort of dovetails into our uh, next piece, which is that Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness is in its final week of filming. It is about to wrap as we record this. And one of the things that Feige has commented on 
he was asked about interconnections in the next phase of Marvel, specifically WandaVision, Doctor Strange, and Spider-Man No Way Home. And Feige said, quote, The biggest clue is the title of the second Doctor Strange movie. That's the biggest clue of where this is taking us and how we're exploring that. So, the word multiverse, I think, is the clue he's talking about. Are you sure? Because we might not be spending paying enough attention to the words into. <laughs> I mean, it could just be could just be doctor. What if doctor is the clue? I think it's into. I think I mean the, the next no, no, Marvel so, no, no, no. We go back. Doctor Who used to be a Marvel comic. All I'm saying, I would not be mad if a TARDIS popped up in the middle of Doctor Strange 2. And out of that TARDIS comes Mephisto! <laughs> um. Um, so yeah, so again, um, in addition to just that sort of connection that Feige is hinting at, um, Doctor Strange 2 is almost done filming, which is awesome. Um, that is good. That uh, is encouraging, because uh, I, I, I figure that Benedict Cumberbatch has been quite busy probably having to bounce between that and whatever work is being done on Spider-Man. Yeah. Because he's in both. And and this, uh, the last piece here, uh, gets into some Falcon and Winter Soldier spoiler territory, so we're sort of transitioning into that a little bit, so maybe this is a good place to put a spoiler warning. Alright, closing the gate. If you're up to date on Falcon and Winter Soldier, as we record this, we are five episodes in. Penultimate episode just came out. Yep. Um, And one of the surprise characters to show up was Contessa Valentina Allegra de Fontaine, who, if you know your vintage Nick Fury comics, is kind of a big deal in Marvel Comics. Yep. She was supposed to debut in Black Widow before Falcon and Winter Soldier aired. Oh... Oops. It seems like they covered their tracks pretty well. Like it, It's enough of an introduction here that you don't necessarily need to know anything about her previously. Yeah. It's just, oof. And Falcon and Winter Soldier was still in production when Black Widow was getting delayed, so I wonder if they rewrote some things to make that work. They probably did. Um, let's just talk about... Let's talk about um, Falcon and Winter Soldier. So, yeah. on our most recent episode... Yes. Well, up to this point, we've had yes. Bucky and Falcon rescuing Baron Zemo. Right. So are breaking, not rescuing, breaking him out of prison. Breaking well, Zemo. Well, l- looking the other way as he broke out of prison and then aiding and abetting his flight from the country. Enabling his breaking out of prison because he whispers <laughs> to the guy to create right. the right. situation that allows right. Zemo to break out of prison. Right. Which, I mean, not a good choice there, but that's okay now because the Wakandans have him. Yeah, and took him back to the raft. Yep, took him to the raft, which I'm assuming is more secure than whatever German prison he was in. Right, right. Yeah, and then we have... Okay, let's be let's be clear here. Sharon Carter is the power broker, right? <clears throat> if not actually the power broker, then working for the power broker. I think she's the power broker, which, Wow. Yeah. That is a departure for the um, character. Because initially, one, one, one thought that I maybe had, which this the this week's episode 
suggests that you are more correct. But initially what I thought maybe was even working unsanctioned, wanted by the U.S. government, she was continuing the family tradition of trying to keep the super soldier serum out of the wrong hands, like working from the inside out. Yeah, but uh, it seems awfully shady. Yes. Well, and especially now that, like, she's, like, calling up Batrock. <laughs> yeah, and apparently has hired him before. So right. she right. hired him for the mission at the beginning of the series, presumably. Right. Um, I mean, I got I got some Power Broker vibes from her the episode before last. Sure. I, I mean, at the very least, she was operating in a moral gray area where either she was in deep cover or... Uh, she was up to some not great stuff. Which I'm leaning more towards the oh, I'm exiled from the United States and a criminal? Fuck it. Let's become a criminal. So yeah, so that that is an interesting twist if if it turns What's out a twist? That, that Sharon Carter is in fact the power broker. Yes. Definitely a deviation from the comics, but then they kind of, to keep us surprised, they kind of have to deviate from the comics. I'm curious to see what MCU Contessa's deal is, because she's sort of all over the place in the comics. Yeah, she seemed a little villainy. Well, and in the comics, she's, what, Madame Hydra for a while? You know, I'm not up there with my Nick Fury reading. I'm way behind on Make Ours Marvel, and, Hmm. like, Starenko hasn't even come in yet in my Nick Fury reading. Okay, so if you're watching Make Ours Marvel, sorry, spoilers, um... Or if you're listening to Make Ours Marvel, rather. Uh, oh, no, I'm watching the Contessa. <laughs> the Contessa just showed up in their reading, but she starts out as a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent uh, who catches Fury's one good eye. <laughs> uh, but over the years, she has been a double, triple, whatever agent for various organizations. So I, I know Hydra becomes involved at one point. At one point, she is affiliated with Leviathan, which is connected to the Great Wheel of Zodiac. <laughs> so one thing that I was thinking is is maybe part of Phase 4 is bring into play all of these different, like, secretive organizations, whether criminal or, or otherwise shady. So you've got, like, the Power Broker in Madripoor. You've got whatever the Contessa is affiliated with, whether it's Leviathan or Revitalized Hydra or whatever. You've got the Ten Rings coming back with Shang-Chi. Like, like where we're getting sort of this expansion into the sort of criminal underground of the Marvel Universe. Yes. So... And that seems like, if she's in Black Black Widow, seems like that might connect to Taskmaster too. And also, she seems to be recruiting John Walker here. Yes. Which... And so... So one theory that that a friend of mine posited was what if she is actually working for Thunderbolt Ross? Ooh. Like a putting together the Thunderbolts. A Thunderbolts situation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, that she's ex-shield. Uh-huh. Putting together Thunderbolts. Thunderbolts would need a Black Ops cap. Oh. Let a John Walker led Thunderbolts. How would you feel about that, Trey? I I'm all for it. <laughs> actually. <laughs> Yeah, they do the thing. They do the missions that need to be done. Right, right. Ooh, that's good. Right. That's uh, 
Because I could see uh, Yelena Belova in Black Widow being a potential recruit. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about John Walker here. Right, right. There we get we get the big fight with Sam. Yeah. Uh, well, gosh, it's been, it's been forever since we talked about the show. So of course, John Walker killed a dude in episode four. Right. Um, after watching his best friend be uh, get accidentally murdered, and right. he's already taken a super soldier serum, so. Right. He goes and kills himself a terrorist. With the shield. With the shield. With the whole world watching. Yep. Yeah. Not a good aesthetic. Right. So um, which which leads to the big three way fight between Bucky, Sam, and uh, and John Walker. Yep. And uh, leads to him being stripped of the title Captain America. Yep. Along with all other ranks and and privileges, he loses his benefits. He loses everything. It's it's they they call it an other than honorable discharge. Which, how is that better than a court martial? He doesn't go to jail. Okay. He in the hearing he keeps yelling. You need to take into account the context. And they are saying we did take into account the context. The fact that Battlestar had been killed is the only reason that you're not getting put on trial right now. Okay, so the only reason he's not going to jail. You you used excessive force, but you were responding to a legitimate threat. And so in balancing that, we are punishing you, but not as much as we could have. Okay, that makes sense. But the the look on his wife's face when he gets stripped of his rank and his position, it's like, hold up, I had to pay for both of us now? Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's just, mm. Uh, And can I just say for a minute, poor Lamar... Yeah. He, he deserved better. He didn't deserve that. He did not deserve that. Our, uh, Johnny Boy went a little cray-cray, I think. Yeah. He, yeah. Well, and so he was already making bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Like, he may have been a good soldier, but he was not good at making Captain America decisions. Yeah. And so it seems like the, the super soldier serum is further impairing his judgment. Yeah. Which, if you read the comics, feels real familiar. <laughs> yep. Yep. And, but he's making himself his own dang shield, because Sam stole his. Yep. Well, not his, yep. but you know. Yeah. Honestly, it's not going to happen. I hope, I would love to see them do what uh, Christopher Priest has happened to John Walker in the current uh, U.S. Agent miniseries that's going. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in, in the current miniseries, U.S. Agent has been fired by the government mm-hmm. um, he and he's no longer even like an active contractor mm-hmm. uh, but for but through a series of like bureaucratic accidents he gets reactivated for an assignment and so he goes out to try and take care of it but every so often throughout the miniseries something will dent or break or damage his shield because it is not vibranium and it is not adamantium and he will complain because he has to go out of pocket on those now and of course the one he's building in whatever his garage or whatever is definitely also not vibranium or adamantium. Right. So right. It's gonna get right. the crap beat out of it, and it's gonna be ugly right. too. Right. I, I fully expect to see like like a banged up, damaged, like in pieces shield by the end of whatever fight he ends up in. Yeah, a meme you sent me earlier today is like the great value shield. Yeah, I made that. You made that. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. <laughs> you need to oh, if you. Post that to the tomb Twitter. Just do it. I, I, well, I was waiting. I was waiting to avoid spoilers. Yeah, the grace period. So I'll like I'll give it. 
you know, the weekend or so. Yeah, well, let's put, put it out when we put out this episode. That, that'll work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was great. That was, because that's what it's going to look like. He's making right. that, right. like, a shield <laughs> made by Howard Stark versus mm-hmm. a shield you put together in your garage and you are not Howard Stark. Right. Can we also talk about how powerful the scene with Isaiah Bradley was? Very. Extremely so. For a couple reasons. One, because they basically retell an episode from his actual, like, comics history. That is a thing that happens in the comics, is he basically goes AWOL on a mission to save some of his fellow soldiers. Mm -hmm. And ends up in prison for it. But what really struck me is that in the context of the MCU, the thing that put Isaiah Bradley in prison is almost exactly the thing that made Captain America a superhero. Yep. Like, Captain America's first mission was going AWOL to save POWs because he didn't want to leave anyone behind. Particularly Bucky. Yep. But he didn't want to leave anyone behind. And so, and with Captain America, that leads to him, like, becoming a key figure in the in the war effort. But for Isaiah Bradley, he ends up in prison as a uh, an experiment. Yep. Which, which is just a really powerful contrast that the episode makes but without ever having to spell it out like it doesn't have to like say hey remember in uh first avenger like it just relies on you to remember that it's so good so very good uh, the other thing that stood out to me is that i am a little annoyed that so when you're telling a story w- one of the rules of drama is you don't put chekhov's wakandan box of technology on the stage unless you're going to use it. Okay. I'm making a theater joke. I got the, I got the joke, but what's the, what's the box? Oh, the new costume or whatever it well, is. Well, the new wings. It's new wings, new costume, new everything, man. I, I'm, I am sure it's wings with a red, white, and blue scheme. Yeah, yeah. Although, going back to Isaiah Bradley for a second, we really need to talk about Carl Lumley. He's so good. He's he is so, so good. good. You know, he's come a long way since Mantis. He really- <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, a little bit of the Martian Manhunter in there, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which, is, is, is he our first actor who's both in the MCU and the Arrowverse? Uh, well, he was animated Martian Manhunter. Well, yeah. He's animated uh, Martian Manhunter, but... Oh, oh, right, and he's on the, the Arrowverse, Yeah, right? he's, he's, um, he's Martian Manhunter's dad in Arrowverse. Right. I, I don't know. I don't think so. Surely not. This is going to bug you now, isn't it? It really is. Uh, I'm also so far behind in the Arrowverse yeah. that I have no way of like accurately answering that. But yeah, like um, for all we know, by the time you hear this, Brandon Roth be cast as Reed Richards. Right, right. I can imagine worse casting. Yeah, <laughs> he would not be a bad choice. No, I feel a bit bad for him getting typecast though. Oh, that's the. It's basically Ray Palmer again. It's basically Ray Palmer again, except maybe a little more serious than Ray. Well, and and. The Arrow versus version of Ray was basically their Tony Stark. Yes, to the point where apparently Adam in the comics reads wears armor now. It's funny, kind of. Uh, they gave the armor to Ryan Choi. Okay. To differentiate the two. And Gail Simone did not like it. Yeah, she didn't like the armor. Well, because Ryan Choi's whole deal pre-powers was that he had a background in like gymnastics or something. Yeah. So, like, bulky armor doesn't make sense for someone who moves well. Yeah. Yeah. Take note, Peter Parker. <laughs> yeah. Stop Stop designing spider armors. They don't work. <laughs> um, so, anyway, Falcon Winter Soldier is real good. It is real good. Um, 
and, and I am really interested to see. There's a lot of loose ends to tie up with this with this last episode coming yep. up between the Flag Smashers and Batrock and Falcon and Bucky and uh, yeah, I have great value Captain America. I have no idea what the Flag Smashers are up to. Yeah, I'm not even quite sure what their beef is. So I mean, I know that they are angry at the current world governments because they were they were people who in the blip were displaced into other countries. They basically yeah. when half of the population disappeared, suddenly places needed people to, to like work and mm-hmm. stuff. And so these people uh, who are now refugees, uh, they went into these places that desperately needed people and they created lives for themselves over five years. And then Endgame happened and all the people came back. And so suddenly all these people who have lived there for five years and have made those places their home are being told, no, you need to go away now. But they're stateless because they, you know, they had sort of renounced where they lived to go to this other place. And, and so going back is not necessarily easy. Uh, so th- that, that's, that's their overall uh, conflict is they are trying to get back to a world where those borders that broke down during the blip get broken down again. Yeah, I don't think they're, like, trying to murder half the people on the planet. They aren't very good at articulating exactly what they want, which is maybe a, a makes them less sympathetic, but it also just seems like a failure of writing that it doesn't get clearly articulated. Yeah, I, I, I get the idea they're trying to stay a little bit vague on mm-hmm. what exactly they're there for, because they're like, well, they're, they're still terrorists. You know, we don't, we don't want you to sympathize with them too much. But I'm already seeing a lot of Twitter chatters saying, like, well, you know, they're not wrong. And, and it's that their ideals aren't necessary. It, it, it's the killmonger problem, right? Like, there, there are ideals underlying their actions that are not wrong, but the actions are still wrong. Yeah. And the thing stopping Carly from being a great villain is the action she seems to be taking seems a little cartoony. Mm-hmm. Like... Well, and, and it will be going so well, and there will be a single line of dialogue that will undermine it all. Yeah. Like, aren't you paying attention to the news? We are criminals. Or whatever. Or when, when she lets the building blow up with the people inside, and she has, like, the one snarky comment about it. Yeah, it's, it's like, uh, we must unite the nations of the world. So we're going to blow up the UN. And on, on a certain level, I think you could maybe read that as the modified super soldier serum also affecting her. Mm. But that sort of gets undermined by the fact that it doesn't seem to affect her other people quite so much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the actress is good. I'm just not yes. sure the villain's written well. It's a, It may be a case of too many villains, you know? Mm-hmm. Because really, John Walker is a villain yep. for, for the purposes of this show. He is an antagonist, at least. Yeah. But then we've got the Flag Smashers. But then we've also got Batrock. But but then we've also got the Power Brokers people. Oh, like, oh and Zemo. You know? And we've also got Zemo running around still. Well, he, he's off the table now. But we think. We think. Although, I don't, but, I'm not sure how you escape from Wakandan, so... Right, right. So, but that, that's just a lot of villains across a six-episode series. Yeah. Do we feel like this series might have benefited from three extra episodes like WandaVision had? I'd say at least, I'd say two to three, somewhere mm-hmm. in there. Um, and that's a fine line to walk, because you don't want to end up with filler. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think that the second half of the series is going very quickly. Yes, I, and I don't think people are as invested here as they were with WandaVision. 
Well, and WandaVision forced you to do a little more work, you know? Like, like it because of the way it was playing with, with medium and genre, like, it required more attention. Whereas this is a more conventional action-adventure story, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, like, you could take out the shield and the wings, and it would be, like, a Jack Ryan plot or something, you know? Yeah, I get that. Anyway, that's us talking rather disjointedly about Falcon <laughs> and Winter Soldier. <laughs> right, right. Which is good, and, and yeah, you should be watching it. It's good, it you should not. watch it. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's what we got there. Yeah. But... Comics. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with average-sized band thing. I mean, it's perfect. It's, perf- it's, it's, it's a good size... Sure. You, you know, it's it, you know, it's not the size of the comic; it's the motion of the pages. <laughs> we'll be right back with Man Thing number eight right after these messages. There's something like a hundred and fifteen thousand English language podcasts in the world, and no doubt. Hundreds of them are aimed at the comic book genre. There are sci-fi comic podcasts. Horror comic podcasts. War comic podcasts! But do you know what we need? You guys crazy enough to combine those fields and make a podcast of their very own? Yes. It's the answer to a question no one asked, so that's why we are answering it. Such a gaping hole in the podcast landscape must be filled post-haste. Did you really just use the word post-haste? The Weird Warriors podcast covers the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. Along the way, we'll also check out other horror and war comics published by DC, Marvel, Charlton, and any other targets that may present themselves to us. I have the war books, and he has the horror books. So if you're ready to take a nice, relaxing look at the hell of war in comic book form from the age of the caveman to the distant future, then report for duty by subscribing to the Weird Warrior Podcast, brought to you by the Brothers Flea, wherever fine podcasting provisions are issued. Vampires. Aliens. Dinosaurs. Alien dinosaurs. There's something for everyone. General Sherman said war is hell, but do you know what else is? weird for our purposes yes so tune in to the weird warrior podcast today do it that's an order yes sir don't call me sir i work for a living but we're not getting paid for this Dang. well i'm max and i'm rich and we're going to be bringing you the weird warriors podcast where we will promise to make war no more brute force with a badge his name is mitchell Joe Don Baker is Mitchell. Mitchell, I want action. What kind of a policeman are you anyway? Oh, you're mean. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. My name is James Hickson, 
And our first issue this episode is Perfectly Adequately Sized Man-Thing number 8, The Gift of Death. Cover date on this one is August 1974. Writer is Steve Gerber. Artist is Mike Plug. Inker is Mike Plug. Letterer is Artie Simic. The colorist is Petra Goldberg. Editor is Roy Thomas. When we last left the Man-Thing, he was about to be run down by a fanboat piloted by the disgruntled F.A. Schist after being partially transformed in, back into his human form after an encounter with the Rainbow Waters of the Fountain of Youth located in the hidden Spanish enclave in the Everglades. Manny, that's what I'm calling him now, manages to dodge the boat, causing Schist to instead crash and the boat to go boom. The half-man, half-muck decides to take refuge in the Spanish Enclave, where the residents now greet him with open arms. The man-thing is taken deep below the Enclave to meet the Fathers, the elders who run La Hacienda and are partially hidden by shadows. It seems the Fathers believe they can cure the man-thing, washing him in the rainbow waters in the fountain. The process seems to work as the creature progresses further back into the form of Ted Salas, but the procedure is interrupted by the arrival of F.A. Schist, who has followed them to the secret chamber. Schist insists that he not only be allowed to drink the rainbow waters to gain eternal life, but also to bottle it and sell it, promising to share the profits with the fathers. The fathers seem amused by this idea and allow Schist to drink the waters. It is only then that Schist realizes that the waters are meant to be bathed in, not drunk, as he becomes transformed into a ghoulish husk just like the fathers who made the mistake of drinking the waters centuries ago. Driven mad by the trick played on him by the fathers and the horrific transformation, Schist takes one of the Enclave's beautiful inhabitants, Lorena, captive. The half-transformed man-thing who has befriended Lorena intercedes. In his weakened stay, however, Schist seems to have the upper hand before accidentally throwing the man-thing into a vat of his former swampy materials. The swampy materials enveloped the man-creature, reverting him to the form of the man-thing. Realizing his mistake, Schist feels fear, and that the man-thing's touch is quickly reduced to ash. Realizing to return the man-thing to human form of Ted Salas might start the whole tableau anew, the fathers instead decide to release the creature back to the swamp, believing humanity not yet ready learn their secrets. This was a nice conclusion to this story that's been building for really quite a while. Yeah. We see the death of F.A. Schist here. Yeah. And... Pretty conclusively, yeah, too. Yeah. Being reduced to ash is usually a good sign someone's not coming back. Yeah. Also, thank goodness for Plug's carefully placed shadows, because... We also got a, a really good look at Ted Salas's man thing. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely good use of shading there. Uh, we don't want a um, black label Batman movement. <laughs> right, right. Although I have to say the 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 man thing head on an otherwise human looking body is really disconcerting. Yes. In a kind of Lovecraftian kind of way. Yes. Actually, more disconcerting than just regular man thing. Absolutely. I think so. I think he is way creepier like this. Something about the trunk. I don't know. Yeah. So, I do have some qualms, uh, particularly looking at the art. First off, Mike Blue, yeah. amazing as always. Yes, um, yes. Lorena gets whitewashed. In... Yeah, cover, cover's problematic. Yeah, because Lorena is 
Spanish, if not Hispanic here, black-haired. But on the cover, she's a blonde. Yeah, and I'm not sure who colored the cover, but uh, that was a bad choice. Yeah, possible. Otherwise, the artwork's fantastic. I mean, it's Mike Plug, so... Right, and and it is awesome having Plug on this book again. Didn't he... He started out on Man-Thing, didn't he? No. No, this is one of the few that we've not seen him do regularly. No, Val Myrick was... <clears throat> The man. That's right. Was the man thing artist? Myrick yeah, was. yeah. But Plug is a good fit for this. He is. He is, and uh, as we'll see in our other issue as well, because it's also a Mike Plug joint. It's really good here. Although it is a bit weird that Oliver Queen shows up in this book. <laughs> yes. Yes. The uh, the guy that uh, is sort of he's he's got the Indiana Jones hat and the the sort of expedition attire, the khaki everything. Yeah. But but he has the full on Oliver Queen, uh, Mike Grell, uh, Van Dyke. Yes, yes. We're talking comic book Oliver Queen here, not You Have Failed to City Oliver Queen. Right, right. Uh, Longbow Hunters era. Yeah, yeah. Which is actually a little later than this, but. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, but it's, sure. <laughs> it's really Neil Adams era. Neil Adams is the one who really gave him that look, yeah. Yeah, it, also, I, I guess what strikes me is uh, Man Thing's arc in this. Is, is basically Man-Thing's version of every other Ben Grimm story. Yes, although he doesn't have a desire to become human again, so... Well, that we know of. Well, he doesn't have any desires. Right, he, he's basically mindless. He is driven by instincts. Yeah, and I, I, I guess here's the place I want to point out. The Elder's excuse for not turning him back into Ted Salas is a bit bullshit. It is, because... The only people who know that Man-Thing is there are now dead. Yes. Also, the idea that, oh, we're going to have to go through the same thing with Ted Salas that we had to go F.A. Schist right here is ridiculous because you don't know that Ted Salas is the same person that F.A. Schist was. Right, right. You, You should at least give him the chance to, you know, try to explain himself or try to show you he can be different before you decide, nope, just gonna curse you being the swamp monster. Right. Yeah, it's not great. And 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 again, it's all the more tragic, I think, because the man thing doesn't even know what it's losing. Yes. Yes. I do have a few other qualms as well. Lorena uh seems to be another female character here, simply there to be sympathetic to the hero and then taken hostage. Yeah, that that is a recurring thing. The plus side here is that she doesn't die. Yep. Yep. <laughs> also, how the heck did Schist get past these people? That's a good question that I kind of wondered myself. Uh, so, for one thing, he, he walks away from that crash, right? Yes. So he can't be at 100%. No. Uh, and then, yeah, like he, like, he looks like the manager of a used car lot. Like, not someone who's going to silently sneak into this fortress. Tonight, on a very special episode of Man-Thing, the role of F.A. Schist will be played by Joe Don Baker. <laughs> right, exactly. He looks like Mitchell. He's Mitchell. <laughs> Mitchell! <laughs> so, you really do have to wonder how he got past these people. Because, he, like, he goes past the courtyard, through the tunnels, down the shaft, and... Well, sorry, I got back to Man-Thing for a second there. Uh, <laughs> but, really, how just doesn't make any sense for him to just show up there without anybody challenging him. Yeah. Him um, and Scientist also- Dude, whose heart is not in it. Right. Right. I didn't really talk about him in my summary, but um, he apparently dies here. He's still there. Yeah, seems like it. Yeah, he, he falls to his death. 
Yep. In the stupidest way possible. Yeah, it literally just panics and picks a direction and runs. Yep. Off the cliff. Um, also, while we're on the topic of things that don't quite click, since when is Man-Thing afraid of fire? Since he got confused with Frankenstein by Steve Gerber here? I mean, right, I guess? Like, he's burned before. I'm pretty sure he has walked through fire before. Yes, yes. Wait, no, and no, no, that's really zombie. Fa- that's the zombie. I'm thinking about the, the zombie. The zombie definitely walked through fire. The zombie just but, like, walked through fire, the, no problem. The man thing has been, like, around explosions and things, like when he attacked the construction site. Yes. And it wasn't a big deal. In fact, he walked away all cool from them. Right, but but here, he's, like, seemingly terrified or weakened or, or at least, like driven back by fire which just seems odd to me possibly because he he has some of his humanity returned to him right he he does have he's part human at that point yeah he has the hand the hand is turned human again so maybe part of the reasoning fire bad has returned he actually has flesh he has some sense of his own mortality which man thing usually does not have so because because he has a sense of his mortality because of partial transformation that's why he seeks shelter in the Enclave, and so forth happens. I can see that. I, it's just not made clear in the narration. I would like to know where I can send my no-prize request. <laughs> but yeah, this was, this was a, a good issue. It's a, it's a good conclusion to the story. Minor quibbles aside, um, we are done with F.A. Schist. Yep. And presumably the whole construction subplot at the edge of the swamp. Yes. To be replaced by a new construction subplot on the edge of the swamp, uh, <laughs> which we will get to in just a few minutes. <laughs> uh, but really, you know, we're going to talk more about Mike Plug in the next issue, but his artwork really shines here. This cover is fantastic. The, it the is. man it's thing busting out of the table while the woman who is blonde on the cover, but of course we know is not in the book is being cha- menaced by the near-skeletal F.A. Schist. That, that is classic horror cover right there. It is. And and I think what what I like about it is it's kind of giving away the ending without giving away the ending. Yes. Like, because that is definitely meant to be Schist, but because nobody's read the story yet, you don't know that that's supposed to be Schist. Yeah. Like, you think, oh, those elders, they're going to attack somebody... Because you, it's yep. obvious the elders are skeletal like that. But when it turns out to be Schist that it, ha- that it happens to, and uh, he's the one who attacks Elena, 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 Lorena. Wow, Lorena. <laughs> That's it's it's just good. It's a great cover. Definitely my favorite of the two we're looking yeah. at this this week. Yeah, we're gonna go ahead and take a quick break. Uh, get our stretches in before we take on Giant Size Man Thing number one. After these messages. It's Citizen Kane Minute, hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a collection of special guests. Citizen Kane Minute will examine the greatest film of all time, five minutes at a time. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Hey, hi, I'm Joel Robinson of Mystery Science Theater 3000. These are my friends, uh, Crow. Hi, I'm a chicken. And my friend, Tom. Quack, 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 quack. And we're trapped up in outer space and forced to watch horrible movies against our will. Please help us. Joel, our next film is The Amazing Colossal Man. At the bottom of this film lies a big, big man. Amazing? Kreskin? 
Gomp Stopper? Oh? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you wish. Oh, he's so fair-skinned, he shouldn't be out in the sun so long. Okay, so watch us, please, on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Saturday morning at 10 here at Comedy Central. <laughs> Welcome back, Tomb Believers. Our next issue for today is Giant Size Man-Thing number one. It's divided into three chapters. Chapter one is called How Will We Keep Warm When the Last Flame Dies? Chapter two is This Mind, This Universe. And chapter three is No Shortage of Evil. The cover date is August 1974. The writer is Steve Gerber. The artist, Mike Plug. The inker, Frank Chiramonte. The letterer is John Costanza. And the colorist is Petra Goldberg. The editor, as always, is Roy Thomas. Wandering to the edge of the swamp, the Man-Thing encounters two men arguing with entropy-worshipping cultists. The cultists are angry because the two men aim to develop a new, renewable source of energy, which is antithetical to the cultists' belief that entropy is the destiny of the universe. The cultists open a strange box, revealing the golden brain. The two scientists are speechless, but at the edge of the swamp, the Man-Thing immediately convulses in pain as the strange brain in a jar causes Man-Thing's empathic senses to go haywire. Just then, the cultists notice Man-Thing, and one of them demonstrates that their leader, Yagzan, showed him how to use the brain to conjure a demon. A being of pure electricity rises and lunges for the Man-Thing. Man-Thing oozes out of the electric demon's grasp, but is unable to counterattack as his fist passes into and through the demon. The fight continues until Man-Thing uproots a nearby tree, using it to spear the demon, destroying it. The resulting feedback causes the jar containing the golden brain to explode, launching it into some nearby quicksand. As the cultists try to retrieve it, the two scientists return to their truck and resume their activities as the Man-Thing returns to the swamp. Chapter 2 begins with the golden brain sinking into the quicksand. Slowly, it regains its memories. Formerly, it was Joe Timms, a tough guy who through a series of misfortunes was mutated into the Glob, a creature who previously fought the Incredible Hulk. Bouncing out of the water, the brain focuses its energies and creates a new human-looking body for itself out of the earth. And yet, using all of that energy, caused it to completely forget its previous life, so the newly formed man wanders away to find help. Meanwhile, in Miami, the Entropist's leader, Yagzan, punishes the cultists for their failure, killing Akar, the one who lost the brain. He then resolves to go after the two men, Benton and Marshall. Back in the Everglades, Man-Thing has followed those two men, as they take notice of the reborn and amnesiac Joe Thames. They give him a blanket and some coffee, but he's unable to answer any of their questions. And yet, from a distance, Man-Thing senses something within the man that reminds him of pain and suffering. Several days later, Benton and Marshall's project has taken shape as Omegaville, a sprawling mini-village inside geodesic domes, housing a self-sufficient community powered by solar energy. Unsurprisingly, this development has drawn the attention of the media, including Richard Rory for WNRV Radio in Citrusville. Benton tells Rory that Yagzan, the leader of the Entropy Cult, is a former colleague of Dr. Marshall, who sees the energy crisis as a sign of the end times. 
He also introduces Rory to the amnesiac Thames, who they call Joe. After nobody was able to identify him, the scientists allowed him to stay in Omegaville with them. Later that night, the Man-Thing shambles through the swamp, arriving at a place where the Entropists are laying Akar to rest by setting him aflame in an open grave. Yagzan then turns his attention toward Omegaville, still sensing the lost brain through his psychic connection to it. He reaches out mentally, and Joe is compelled to return to Yagzan. The cult, the cult leader then uses his power to force Joe to devolve until he is once again the Glob. The creature is ordered to destroy Omegaville, which draws Man-Thing into the fray. The creatures fight, with each blow sinking into the oozing body of the other. Finally, the Man-Thing drives both hands into the Glob's body and rips the creature apart from the inside out. Exhausted, the Man-Thing collapses. Yagzan runs to the remains of the Glob, trying to compel it to reform, but instead, the Muck swarms around the cult leader, suffocating him as the Man-Thing silently returns to the swamp. Have you ever noticed that when we come back from a break, I say my name, but you don't say your name? <laughs> I have never noticed that, no. How egotistical does that make me? <laughs> or am I the egotistical one for just assuming people will recognize my voice? Do you got a point there? Maybe I'm just <laughs> jealous of you and constantly striving to be recognized for my, for my own contribution as you are for your brilliance. No. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, Giants is a bad thing. Yeah, milestone. But indeed, it is. I'm not entirely sure we would call it giant size, though. It. So what I did not summarize is a whole bunch of reprints that take up the rest of the issue. This is true, and they're your basic kind of giant creature in the mo- in the mold of man thing. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're talking like... Monsters. 50s, early 60s monster comics. Like like Atlas and early Marvel stuff. And then some weird of weird Invisible Man story. Yes. Yeah. Which... I only sort of skimmed those because Man-Thing was not in any of them. Yeah, he's not a monster, though. I just don't understand why he's there. I mean, I get Gom, the, man, the thing from Planet X, and I get... Right. Uh... The ice monster cometh because you know what they're they're big monsters like man thing, and then right. invisible man is just like you know this invisible man dude. Okay, fine, whatever. Who looks like Hank Pym? I wonder if it was just the right number of pages to fit to fill out the slot the, in the issue. That's there's a possibility. So let's talk about the story itself. Yeah, shades of biodome. <laughs> yes, a little bit. Um, I, honestly. This is the more Gerber weird issue than the the one we just talked about. Yes, with an Adonis being formed, very similar to Aquarius, or the character who would become Aquarius, who showed up in Gerber's Marvel 2 and 1 story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not to mention, like, the cultists who are obsessed with entropy, like, that feels like a, a Steve Gerber thing. Oh, that's definitely a Steve Gerber thing. That has Steve Gerber written all over it. I, Speaking of Steve Gerber weirdness, I love the golden brain in a jar, basically. Yes. Well, I love that Steve Gerber says, you know what? We're going to bring back the glob from the Incredible Hulk, but now he's a brain in a jar. Oh, 
Not only that, but like, did you notice that the electrical creature that he has to fight, that's supposedly a demon in the first part, looks like the Glob's original appearance when he fought the Hulk? Yeah, does. Yeah, <laughs> it's it. He looks like the Glob, but but sparkly. So it kind of makes more sense to me that he'd be like a mental projection rather than like a demon. Right. Right. Like that's not him summoning a demon. That's him making a mental projection, like Green Lantern style, from the from the Golden Brain. Right. And the fight with the electrical beast is good. Like there's a part it where is. the that's... yeah with the electrical beast blast Man Thing, and there's it just blasts a huge hole in the middle of Man Thing's torso. Yeah. Mind you. Yeah, and you can just see you can just see like vaporized swamp goo flying out the back of him. Yes, it's really good. You could. Uh, you see a little of the old ultraviolence, as it were. Yep, yep. Um, even uh, the way he takes out the electric creature um, is not terribly explicit, but still, like, he impales it with a tree trunk. Yep, yep. And the nice thing about having these inhuman, not-flesh-and-blood beasts fighting each other is you can have a bit of ultraviolence like that and get away with it because right. there's no blood involved. And- and because it's Steve Gerber, you can go immediately from that kind of incredibly violent visceral fight to a whole page of the brain bouncing along the ground, falling into the water in a kind of slapstick kind of mode. Yes. I really love the brain making its own body. Yes. Years before the Beyonder and, did it. Yeah. Well, and so the first page of chapter two, I think it's page 11. It's a splash. And it, it's it's a plug montage. Yep, it is. And he does, like, the entire backstory of the glob in, like, two pages. It's awesome. Yes, it is. It's good stuff. Just for for reference, because I'm always curious about these sorts of things, the the glob, Joseph Thames, I guess, mm-hmm. has many, many more appearances beyond this one. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this isn't his end? No, he goes back to the Hulk for a while. He's in... Uh, so, I don't know if you remember this, uh, but in the early 2000s... I don't remember much of the early 2000s, but okay, go ahead. Keith Giffen did a monster book called Nick Fury's Howling Commandos. Okay, yes, I do remember this. And it was it was a bunch of monsters basically working for S.H.I.E.L.D. Okay. Um, and the glob is one of the Howling Commandos. Oh! Well, isn't that special? Uh, I don't think he shows up again later, because later there's a different version of the Howling Commandos that are monsters. He's not in that one, I don't think, but he, he's at least in some episodes of the... or some issues of the first version. But it is the same glob? Uh, according to the Marvel Wiki, it is. Okay. Because like, like maybe um, like Cult Leader's intelligence got incorporated into it or something, but well, maybe, probably, maybe not. Well, so here's the thing. Yagzen? Yes? Not his last appearance either. Oh, gosh darn it. <laughs> so what you're telling me here is that giant-sized man-thing, number one, is meaningless. <laughs> um, Doesn't matter. Also, the uh, Omegaville, I think, continues to be a thing. Not, not regularly, but it, it does show up again. Because I'm pretty sure it got burned to the ground here. Right, right. Um, it, it has two more appearances. One of them is an issue of The Incredible Hulk, which is what brings back the glob, I think. We'll probably have to cover that one. It looks like Man-Thing's in it. Okay. Well, that's something to look forward to. Um, 
It's got uh, Hulk, Man Thing, the Glob, and the Collector. <laughs> okay. If anybody can bring the Glob back, it's the Collector. And then both, uh, and then Omegaville also makes an appearance in Iron Man Annual Number Three. Interesting. Which also features Man Thing. Oh, we'll cover on the show then. Um, so yeah. Uh, at least, judging from the cover, it features Man-Thing. <laughs> <laughs> cover is going misleading, but if Man-Thing's on the cover, we'll cover the book. Right, right. Uh, we, we covered that, that Silver Surfer that didn't really have Frankenstein in it, so... <laughs> I'm still mad about that. <laughs> <laughs> Although not as mad as that X-Men issue, which didn't... Oh, where he, was a, where he was an alien robot? He was an alien robot, and we're like, why is Frankenstein... Oh, the flashback. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yep. We had a guest on we for that. We had a guest one. on for that. <laughs> uh, again, we'd like to express our deepest apologies to John Wilson. Except we're still mad about <laughs> we'll that prank on for on us, so never mind. <laughs> <laughs> but but I was gonna say we'll have him on for a better comic next time, but maybe not. You know he actually <laughs> he actually tweeted about that uh, that comic recently. Did talking he? about how hard it is to get through. Uh, yeah. And we're like, yeah, yeah, we had the same experience when we talked about it with you on the show. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, I guess they're getting up to that point in in Make Ours Marvel. I guess so, yeah. Because yeah, cause I think they're on the Roy Thomas issues. So yeah, they'd be... They, okay, so they, they're gaining on us, Trey. <laughs> when we arrive uh, at the same place at the same time, we have to kung fu fight. So does that mean we're going to arrive at like an issue of Shang-Chi or something? Shh. More about that later. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, th- what's interesting about looking at these two issues side by side is that they came out at roughly the same time. You know, they're both August issues. Both have the almost exact same creative team. Yep. And yet they are wildly different reads. Yes. And you've got to wonder how they picked which story went where. Yeah. I guess it makes sense for the F.A. Schiff story to go into the main title because it was a continuation of what right. it got before. It was picking up a to-be-continued. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the, the the giant size is slightly longer. Only slightly. Slightly. Um, because I think it's like 36 pages, maybe? Yeah. 36 to the, the regular books, 32. Yeah. Um. And, and I the the sort of three act structure is structure is interesting. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I kind of wish more giant sizes would do that because that that actually makes it feel like a bigger story than it is. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the same sort of vibe that we had with some of the early zombie stories in in the magazine was like breaking it up into separate chapters makes it feel bigger. It does, and you know they they used to do that with like annuals. They did that with yeah. annuals a lot, yeah. where each chapter now. Not quite as much fun as you remember the um, Justice League JSA annuals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whenever they would cross over the, the Earth One and Earth Two, and like each chapter would be a different team up because of course they would always split the teams. Right, right. You know, like uh, well, because you'd want a little bit of, of society and a little bit of league in each group. Yes, those were fun. Those are yes. still fun to read today. Yeah, I, I guess the only other thing I can really think of with this issue is we've got a nice letter by Steve Gerber at the end. Yep. Dear Marvel, Fear number 17 through 19 and Man-Thing 1 through 3 show me just what could really be done with a comic book swamp creature. 
Whereas your competitor's Swamp Monster is a typical tragic comic book character, able mind and distorted body, involved in plots which are, for the most part, old horror movie stories reworked to fit this book. Marvel's Man-Thing is something different in comic characters. He is really different. That other character is no longer a man, but he walks and stands like one, even thinks exactly as he used to. But Man-Thing no longer thinks at all, to any great extent. And he has his own type of stance. Head below shoulders, hands held limply out in front of him. He looks sort of like a praying mantis, and this adds to his weirdness immensely. Quite apart from this, the way he meshes into the story is unique. He rarely communicates with people, yet he receives communication from them on the most basic levels. He senses their emotions. This gives him a strange role, to play almost wanting to help, to get rid of evil, without really knowing what he's doing, or being able to tell anyone what he's doing. The stories are excellent. The writer leaps from way out fantasy to human drama with no slacking of pace or quality, and every story has a moral, though not a Buster Brown type, I must not put soap under granny's feet kind of moral, but rather a philosophical point which the writer wants to get across. That's not mentioning the ironies and other subtleties which otherwise interlace each tale. Beautiful. The art has also been consistently good. Man-Thing stands way above his competitors as regards story and characterization. And mood as well. Guy C. Lawley, Inchmary, Doggett Wood Close, Nightingale's Lane, Chalfort St. Giles, Bucks, England. That's a nice letter. It is a nice letter. And, you know, he talks about that other swamp monster. And he makes right. the points right. fairly well. Swamp Thing at this point is a very different character from Man Thing. Yeah. And it isn't really until, I guess, Alan, Alan Moore. Moore in the 80s. Yeah, who, who actually transforms the character so that he's not just someone who, like, is a guy covered in muck. Yeah. Like, Alan Moore is the one who changes the, the nature of what Swamp Thing is, sort of infamously. And, yes. and that fueled that character for, you know, decades to come. So, I gotta say, our boy Manny is really the more original character at this point. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, well, and I mean, so they're, they're both borrowing from the heat, but Swamp Thing is much more directly borrowing from the heat. And then, of course, we have Steve Gerber's reply. Yes, so this is Meditations on a Mound of Muck by Steve Gerber. A confession. The old Saturday matinee-style horror movies, the ones like Rodan and The Amazing Colossal Man and Kronos and the umpteen hundred sequels to Dracula and Frankenstein, those movies always made me laugh. None of them ever scared me. Not one. I remember enjoying The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, mostly because I could identify with the young boy genie, and because Ray Harryhausen's special effects did make the Cyclops credible. But I yawned my way through the rest of those flicks, even back in my elementary school days. The stuff that got to me was the stuff that challenged my imagination. Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon, Twilight Zone, an occasional episode of One Step Beyond or The Outer Limits. Stories with characters that you could admire or loathe or pity or empathize with, or something. Looking back, I think most of the monster movies seemed so silly to me because the people in them were even phonier than the creatures. And the moral of every picture was either atomic testing is bad because it wakes up hibernating pterodactyls, 
Or, if only we could have understood that the spacemen meant us no harm, we'd have built a better world. In one word, black. So when I inherited the scripting chores on Man-Thing, and this is where Guy C. Lawley's letter comes in, I was determined to do something different, something far afield of anything any other swamp-oriented magazine had done. The result? A magazine that's done stories on the occult, science fiction stories, tales of sword and sorcery, surrealistic fantasies, stories on social issues, and a yarn or two about a talking duck. Now that's my idea of a comic book. And what has been most gratifying of all is that it seems to be Marveldom's idea, too, of what a comic book can be. You've made the book a rousing success without forcing us into a formula, without ever suggesting that we become just another monster comic. You've even seemed to enjoy the weird tangents our experimentation has taken us on. We, that is myself, Roy, Stan, and the artists who've worked on Man-Thing, are grateful. For our part, we pledge to continue the non-tradition we've started, to continue shattering precedents. We promise not to bog down, not to take the easy route. We pledge to make each new issue a new experience, for you and for us. That goes for both the regular-sized 25-cent Man-Thing and for each new giant-sized Man-Thing mag as well. Two closing notes. First, I'd like to extend my personal thanks to the many talented artists who've worked on Man-Thing during my tenure on the strip. For example, Rich Buckler, who's now the toast of the Fantastic Four, Jim Mooney, whom I'm currently working with on Son of Satan, and who also lends his talents to Ghost Rider, Jim Starlin, the current sensation of the Kree Galaxy for his Captain Marvel work, Val Merrick, who drew 11 issues of Man-Thing before moving on to the Frankenstein monster and the living mummy, and of course, that bizarre bearded gentleman from New Jersey, the inimitable Mike Plug, who's handling the Man-Thing series now and who we hope will stay with it forever. Secondly, the inevitable plea, write. Let us know if you've enjoyed this first giant size issue, what kinds of stories you'd like to see in future issues, what we did right, what we did wrong, what we didn't do at all but should have. In short, people, keep in touch. We'll do the same. Amen, Mr. Gerber. That's a nice letter. You don't often get to see a, a comic book writer issue a kind of mission statement about the book they're working on, but but that's basically what this is. It's a manifesto about what Gerber thinks comics should be and specifically what he thinks man things should yes. be. Yes, and the answer to that is weird, and that's just the way we like it. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, and, and you know, he, he doesn't misrepresent his work either. That is very much what he has been doing and what we sort of expect the book to continue doing. Exactly. Like, and the nice thing about Steve Gerber's books, um, he's writing a lot of the horror line at this point. They are not interchangeable. No. They are all weird, but they're different kinds of weird. Right, right. Um, you, 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 can't, you can't take a Morbius story and swap out Morbius for Man-Thing. No. Like, like there, you can't, even though he's telling sci-fi fantasy, like he's spanning genres in all of these different books, but not in a way that is easily replaceable from character to character. Each character interacts with those scenarios differently. Yes. And, God, that Morbius issue is weird. <laughs> I just remembering. Still stuck on that. Yeah, it's like, that was so weird. It was, that was maybe the weirdest Gerber we'd had since the Howard the Duck issues. Yep. You know, speaking of Howard, he gets name-checked here. 
He does. Well, not quite. I don't know that Marvel's quite letting him name drop him. No. But Gerber is at least teasing the uh, the existence of the talking duck. Yes. It's... it. And we've gotten that a couple times in the letters column in recent memory. Yes. He will return as, as, as foretold by prophecy and deliver us all from evil. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's... For a first giant size... I don't know. It, it's... I think it's better than the um, Spider-Man with Morbius and, and Man-Wolf. Oh, definitely. And I think it's better than the Spider-Man with Dracula. Yes. I'm not sure if it's something warranting a giant size issue, though. Right. right. And, and that's sort of the problem, is even at this point, they are still really loading down the... They're treating the giant sizes like they do some of the annuals, yeah. and loading it down with extra filler. Like, even... My philosophy with giant size issues, and for angles too, for that matter, is they need to be something big. They need mm-hmm. to be something to, to make it a special event. Right now, the only thing making these any different or advertising them over, say, like the regular series, is just just the size. Yeah, and and again, even that is you know they they advertise on the cover sixty eight big pages, but you know almost half of that is is reprints. Yeah, so it. It was fun. I'm glad we're finally here. Yeah. It's definitely... I, I wouldn't feel cheated if I spent money on it, but... Especially since, like, if you're a kid in 1974, chances are all those reprints are new stories to you. True. True. Like, so it might not be the stories that you bought the issue for, because what you're buying is Man-Thing, but still, like, it's not like what's being reprinted are stories that... Everyone has read over and over and over again. True. Again, I don't feel cheated, but I'm not sure it lives up to the legend of the giant size man thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think that's something that will the, these giant size books I think are going to evolve. Yeah. As as we work our way through them. Yeah. Um, they're 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 still in the early stages of Marvel figuring out what a giant size even is. Like, what's the difference between giant size and the old king size? Or the, or the difference between it and an annual, you know? Yep. Anyway, I think that does it for our coverage of Giants as Man-Thing number one. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with some announcements and what we'll be covering next episode, right after these messages. Give me those Star Wars, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The Sci-Fi Channel rescues Mystery Science Theater 3000 from oblivion, and the critics cheer. The funniest. Hey, who are you calling? Oh, the compliment. <laughs> the crookiest. Yep, we're right up there with 60 minutes. <laughs> the best show on TV. Thanks a lot, guys. Your checks are in the mail. <laughs> Incoming. Mystery Science Theater 3000. Only on the Sci-Fi Channel. Today at 4 p.m. Eastern, Sci-Fi Saturday. 
Welcome back to Unbelievers. On our last segment for the show, we usually talk about uh, your mail to us, your missives, your questions, but unfortunately, we don't have any right now, which at least we ask the question, what the hell is wrong with you? Right. We, we tell you how you can contact us every episode. We will do so again momentarily. Yes. So get on that, people. Exactly. I mean, I would like something to read other than Marvel Horror Comics. And your right, letters right. will do just fine. <laughs> but actually, I have read something besides a Marvel Horror Comic recently because uh, I was a guest on Ryan Daly's Give Me Those Star Wars podcast where we talked about the first novel in the new... Uh, Disney High Republic series, uh, Light of the Jedi. Uh, Trey, have you read, have you read cool. Light of the Jedi yet? I have not yet. I, I've been meaning to catch up on some of the new Star Wars canon stuff, but alas, most of my Star Wars knowledge is still firmly rooted in the Legends era. Well, you know, um, this, of course, is Ryan Davis' podcast. Um, I was there as a guest along with Jonathan Schaefer-Hames, Um who does the Married Watching Cartoons podcast as well as others. And it was a fun time. Uh, if you are one of our listeners who is also a fan of Star Wars and you could put up with my, listening to my voice a little bit longer, uh, I definitely recommend going and checking it out. It's part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. So, again, that's Give Me Those Star Wars Episode 43, which came out back in the end of March. Ryan, I'm sorry it took me so long to mention it on the show. Yeah, that's good stuff yes it is sometimes nice to talk about things other than marvel horror <laughs> yeah yeah and so yeah i unfortunately have not had a chance to uh do any other shows lately maybe that will change at some point but uh in addition to that one of the other things that we've both been pretty excited about i think is the news that joel hodgson is once again relaunching mystery science theater um this time as an independent program uh, outside of any sort of existing network deals or anything. Right. I think you guys have noticed by listening to this episode that we are huge fans of Mystery Science Theater 3000 to the point where I've dropped audio from episodes throughout this episode. And <laughs> heck, our, like I said before, our podcast can basically be called Marvel Horror Longbox 3000. So, right. I. I don't know about you, Trey, but MST3K is a huge part of my childhood and the way my sense of humor developed and all kinds of formative stuff. So, absolutely, I am really excited about new episodes. And also, it's kind of in the same wheelhouse as the the kind of like horror host type stuff that we like. It's not exactly the same no. because they talk through the movie, yep. but. The host segments in between the the general format feels kind of it, it's in it's at least in the same ballpark as uh, the the old uh, horror host format. We did our article about um, our top ten list of horror hosts, top five. I think we did ten, but I could be wrong. Okay, well, you know, it's been. A, it's, I think we did. I think we did five TV and five comics. It was yeah, five TV and five comics. MST3K got honorable mention there. Yeah. Which, that, that's sort of where it belongs. Because, again, it's not exactly horror hosting. Right. Um, it, it, it's, it, it, is, it is somehow more than that. It, it's, <laughs> it's its own animal. But, uh, but I like it for the same reasons that I like the horror host shows. Right. So if you've not been following along, MST3K is the story of a dude who has been trapped on a satellite and forced to watch bad movies with his robot pals. 
I'm just going to watch the theme song. It'll explain everything. Um, MST3K was originally part of KTMA, a local public access state, public access station in the Minneapolis area. It, after a year, it made a jump to the Comedy Channel, which later became Comedy Central. It then went to the Sci-Fi Channel with a movie in between. Movie in between. Yep. Which had just had a great oral history published by right. AV Club. If you want to go get a chance to listen to that. Then the most recent revival was on Netflix. Was unfortunately canceled by Netflix for some goddamn right. reason. Well, for Netflix, it seems like unless you're Stranger Things, they don't like having you run more than two or three seasons. Yeah, which sucks. And they want something that people can binge in a weekend, which doesn't make. That's sense just not to how me. I consume media. No, but. Someone inspired by the success of WandaVision, which we've talked about on the show before, uh, Joel is going to be bringing back MST3K just himself this time. He is crowdfunding a platform called the Gizmoplex, which he describes as a virtual theme park, uh, which will host MST3K episodes. Which, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of hoping it's like the Shout Factory DVD menus, which are just... Guys, if you had a chance to look at these, they are amazing. Go ahead and check out the Shout Factory DVD menus for MST3K. They're on YouTube. It's great. It, it kind of reminds me of like '90s video games, or just starting to figure out, like, hey, jumping around places. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's interesting the the things that he's developing through the Giz- Gizmoplex um, seems to be building on trends of online viewing that have really become popular, especially during the pandemic. Um, uh, I think he's, he's working off of the platform Scener, which uh, I've actually dabbled with a little bit. Scener is uh, a live streaming platform that allows for uh, live commentary, chat, uh, chat room functions, things like that. Um, actually, the, the Rift Tracks guys have done some Scener events in the last year. And so I think they're, they're using that as a base and then building this Gizmoplex platform on top of it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what that looks like. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I still think we're going to yes. get regular episodes like we're used to, including host segments and things like that. But it's going to be a new and interesting chapter of the MST3K And they're going to be doing saga. live events outside of just the regular episodes. Um, there's all kinds of stuff that they're talking about doing through this, this platform. But yeah, uh, in fact, uh, one of the things you can do is... Uh, uh, as an add-on, uh, if you if you give to their Kickstarter, you can select as an add-on just uh, Blu-ray or DVD copies of the new episodes that get produced. Yep. So the original goal um, was th- right. two million for to produce three episodes. Um, they blew like by in that <laughs> in twenty-four hours. They blew by that like twenty-four hours and some change. They blew by that, and they are currently. Very close to their next goal, which is three point three million, which will allow them to make four to right. six. Of course, their ultimate uh, uh, next, like final goal, what they would love to hit is five and a half million, because um, that would that would get them yep. to a full season of ten to twelve episodes. I mean, if I had five and a half million uh, lying around, right. I could donate. Uh, uh, and I the, would. you know, some of these but. rewards packages they have almost get you up to that amount. You know, like there's, uh, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, the the executive producer level where you give like twenty five grand. <laughs> yep, uh, that's just whoo, a little outside right, of price right. price range. But uh, we definitely recommend uh, you know check it out. 
even if you can't donate, it's really cool to look at and check out what they're doing there. And hey, if you could throw a few shekels yeah. at them, yeah, that if you, would be uh, awesome. You know, if you if you search MST3K Kickstarter, you'll probably find it right away. I think on social media, the the hashtag is uh, what uh, make more MST3K. Make yeah. more MST3K. So, so there's yeah. several ways to sort of find out more about it. Um, just for what it's worth, in addition to to that, uh, if you're a fan of mystery science theater stuff, um, one thing that I have really enjoyed in the past year uh, is uh, Frank Conniff and Trace Ballou. Uh, the two two of the former Mads from MST3K um, had had for a while now been doing live in person riffing events where they would rent out a theater, show a couple old movies, and and riff them live. Obviously, with the state of the world being what it is, they've not been able to do that. But they are like ten episodes deep now in a series of live streamed monthly events where. For like ten bucks a pop, you can uh, get access to a YouTube stream where they do a live riffing of, you know, whatever public domain garbage they can get their hands on, <laughs> um, <laughs> and always with a fairly lengthy Q and A at the end with a special guest. Uh, sometimes it's uh, comedians they know. Um, one time it was Svengooli, that was cool. Um, uh, most recently, they did an episode with Bill Corbett, and then the, the the episode that they just did this past month was Kevin Murphy. So they still keep in touch with their MST3K roots, uh, and and that's another thing that uh, and they've been also donating some of the proceeds at various times to to various charities. So uh, they they call their show the Mads Are Back. Uh, they've got a Twitter handle uh, under that name. Um, they've got I think a, a YouTube and a Twitch at this point. Uh, that you can sort of watch clips of their stuff on. Um, so in addition to the official mm. MS23K revival, uh, I did want to mention, just because it has definitely been a bright spot for me in the past year, I wanted to mention that the Mads Are Back has just been a really cool oh, thing, yeah. too. Yeah. Like, but MST3K is just one of those things that's just always important to me. Yes. I, I discovered it when I was like in second grade, and I tried to get my friends into it, but none of them understood. Right. None of them got it. Yep, yep. It was. Just I like, didn't meet other people that liked MST3K until I was in college. <laughs> was it me? You were one of them. Yes. Yay! Uh, but yeah, like because there was a like, at, and at that point, you know, it was off the air. You know, there, it wasn't oh, yeah. on TV anymore. But like, we were like passing around burned discs of. In those days, they were mostly CDs because most of us didn't have DVD burners yet. No. But, but burned discs that you'd watch on your laptop. <laughs> yeah, maybe hook up to like, the TV with a S video cable. <laughs> when I was a kid, I had I had VHS, of course. Yep. And like n- this show came on at times that were inappropriate for a second grader to be staying up right? to watch. So I was definitely trying to teach myself how to set the VCR so I could watch these shows. And I had like a tape of Gamera, the Gamera episode, which I swear I watched to death, <laughs> and it was oh. Yeah, it's it's funny. That was uh, the 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 things that sort of made me learn how the VCR worked were MST3K and uh, stuff like, and this would have been pre Joe Bob because I was older when Joe Bob came along. But uh, but early Monster Vision stuff. Oh yeah, like like Penn and Teller yeah, era. Definitely. Oh man, now I'm gonna go do another deep dive and watch some old '90s television. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, folks, uh, we do want to remind you that you can reach out to us at our email address that's tombofideas at gmail.com 
You can reach out to us on Twitter. It's at Tomb of Ideas. And you can reach us on our Facebook. It's facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas. And of course, Tomb of Ideas is a proud member of the Cinepunks podcasting group. Where uh, Cinepunks.com, you'll find all kinds of great shows, including our entire back catalog. You'll also find Cinepunks, Black Sun Dispatches, uh, Fat Girl Hacks, Horror Business, Weird Obscure Possibly Unsafe, all kinds of great stuff. In addition to uh, some wonderful articles on movies, music, TV, and pop culture. That's uh, Cinepunks.com, where you'll find all of that stuff and more. Right. And next episode, we'll be looking at... Oh, we, we've got a we've got a first. Ooh. It's a book we've never talked Ooh. about before. Of Mice and Men? No. Oh. Although the, the movie with Lon Chaney is pretty Just good. Just canceling that Amazon <laughs> order. Um, no, we are uh, going to be looking at Master of Kung Fu number hey, 19. Hey, Shang-Chi! Yeah. Uh, man, maybe we'll have a trailer by then. What do you think? That would be awesome. Uh, yeah, maybe, at least a yeah. poster. Like maybe a character poster, maybe in a few weeks, maybe a trailer. Right. It's not like right. they're gonna release a poster, tease a few weeks, and then like an hour later release a trailer to no. surprise the star of the movie for his birthday. Or why, why would they ever do that? That's ridiculous. Yeah, but yeah, Master of Kung Fu, Shang Chi. Of course, the reason we are interested in it, as awesome as Shang Chi is, we are looking at this issue uh, because it features Man Thing. Woo-hoo. So this will be our third issue of Man-Thing in a row? I'm not mad at it. No, no. More Man-Thing, the better. Um, so Master of Kung Fu 19, featuring Man-Thing. Um, Supernatural Thrillers number 8, with uh, The Living Mummy. Yay! Been a minute since back. we've seen him. A little bit, yeah. Uh, and one of our old standbys, Werewolf by Night number 20. Right. So make sure you tune in there for that. And we'll see you then. Until next time. Push the button, James. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tomb Members, Excelsior. <laughs>